Hi everyone, we're beginning our series on the Minor Prophets today. Uh, if you're not particularly familiar with the Minor Prophets, then you're in luck because over the next 12 weeks you will be. Um, we're happily back to multiple messages each Sunday, our Nehemiah series continuing at night, this Minor Prophet series beginning now in the morning. So uh, come tonight again if you can, it's never been easier to get back and forth to church on a Sunday, that much is for sure. But for starters, uh, there are 12 Minor Prophets. Um, and we'll look at one each week, a whole book at a time. You'll find those last 12 books of the Old Testament are the minor prophets there. Uh, the first one is Hosea, who we're talking about tonight, and which we'll be going through. And the last is Malachi. Now, some of these little books are only a chapter or two or three or four in the entire book. Some, like Hosea, are sort of more substantial. There's 14 chapters there. Uh, they're reasonably compact, compact books because... Uh, the prophets after whom they are named did not write a lot in their time. They didn't have a lot of prophecy that they marked down to keep. Uh, and they're only called minor prophets, not because they had less important things to say, because they had less content uh, to say, unlike a, a Jeremiah or an Isaiah, each of which wrote as much as the minor prophets all put together. And so the minor prophets, they tend to write in a prophetic style. So it's a, often a sort of a poetic verse when they're pronouncing God's judgment. Uh, or pronouncing God's mercy on the nation of Israel or a surrounding nation. Um, and broadly speaking, the books combined, they show how intimately God is connected and involved in the lives and operations of the people of God and even the nations around His people, and how devoted He is to bringing justice to being done and honor to be shown to His covenant, but ultimately how faithful He is to mankind, even though mankind disrespects Him and rejects Him over and over again. The prophets don't come one after another like they're passing a baton, like sequentially in time. Each of them lived in this 400-year period uh, where the dream of a united Israel under a faithful king who would lead them in God's ways is just coming to pieces around them. And it's kind of important to be able to conjure up in your head a rough timeline uh, of this journey of Israel. And I harp on a lot about this a fair bit, but it's only because it was so helpful to me grappling with the Old Testament to keep those stories straight and clear. So we remember the Old Testament is the story of God raising up and leading a people for himself to be a priesthood to the world, to represent him to the other nations in the world, uh, and much like a priesthood does in Israel, represent him to the nation of Israel on a bigger scale then. And that starts way back in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and uh, God calls Jacob by a new name, Israel, at the point at which he buries his family's idols in this verse here, you'll see on your screen. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar to the, there to God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign idols which they had and all the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. It's a sacred and powerful moment where the people of God give up the worship of this wood and stone and these false idols to embrace the singular faith in a singular God, the one who has lovingly walked with their family all these generations. And generations after that, uh, this family, this great uh, nation is a great nation's worth and they're in slavery in Egypt and Moses is God's man busting them out of Egypt. We know that story as well delivering them the Ten Commandments, the first three of which are, have no other gods, make no idols, and do not take my name 
in vain. That means do not lie about who I am or what I am doing. And as they are getting those commandments chiseled in stone by God's hand on the mountain top, at the bottom of the mountain the people are making an idol and worshipping it as God and praising it for leading them out of Egypt. We don't need to recap how bad that incident was, but it scores this big dark line under the idol worship problem at the heart of Israel. Their job is to be a nation of priests to the world representing God, but they seem to be unable to stop themselves from misrepresenting God and seeking after these false ones. We know that the devil is working against God's people at all hours, but the devil gets surprisingly little screen time in the Old Testament. The main villain of the story of God's people, one of which the devil must approve and support very much, is the people's own hearts turning to other gods and breaking these commandments. And they will wrestle with these sins for a thousand years. And Moses' successor, Joshua, is the one who leads the charge uh, to take the promised land and take back the tribal land of Israel to fulfill the promise that God had given to Abraham. But um, they go up with the explicit commandment, do not compromise your worship of our one God by splicing it with the worship of the other gods of these cultures in the area because the prevailing uh, culture in the area at the time was much more permissive in that regard. An Amorite man could marry a Moabite woman and they could ask the question, are we going to worship Amaru or Chemosh? Why not both? It's better to have two gods washing over you than, uh, than just the one. But our God says, no, no, none of that. You're a priest of the God of Israel, and you do not marry into other nations and compromise that priesthood. But they failed in that task. They were uh, testing Israel uh, in this time. Uh, God's <laughs> God was testing Israel in this time, and he says so in the verse you'll see on your screen. They were testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And so right from the foundation of the Israelite nation, there has been a compromising of their image as representatives of the true God. And if they hadn't, if they hadn't compromised that, then people could have looked at them, the other nations in the area could have seen them, how they were blessed and protected, and asked maybe, oh, it really looks like these Israelites have figured something out. Maybe I should go to them for help as far as making peace with heaven goes. And we see a bit of that happen at the high points in their history. Um, because maybe the old god Chemosh isn't getting the job done over here, maybe we should look to Israel's God and see if he is true. But once they are a compromised people, once they've made these intermarriages, they've built temples and, and shrines to their gods, they put God in a horrible position himself because he promises his people, if they are faithful, he will protect them from invaders, he will give them prosperity in their harvests, and they'll have many healthy children and expand as a nation. He wants to bless his people that way, and for the world to see him blessing his people that way, and so to turn to faith as a response. That's God's cosmic argument through action. I am God and all others are pretenders. But what do you do when those people, this nation of priests, starts worshipping other gods? Does he keep blessing them while the world looks on at these foreign gods saying, Oh, good to see old Chemosh is back in form. Of course not. So God can do the only reasonable thing available at that point. Whenever the nation is so corrupt with idols, he can't stand it. He withdraws his blessing 
and the surrounding nations attack and they make the Israelites suffer and the crops start to die and the hopes of a new generation begin to fade until they turn back to him again and on and on in a cycle of turning away from God and then turning back to him and flaking away again, they go. And this is the story for hundreds of years through the book of Judges and the books of Kings. Uh, there's a high watermark with King David who loves the Lord and King Solomon who builds the temple, but before his life is through, Solomon has done terrible damage to the nation that he was serving. He's married many, many foreign wives, and it says explicitly that they built uh, shrines to each of their gods in Israel. So he pretty much instantiated this idolatry himself, far from what their wisest king should have been doing. And it's all downhill from there. And halfway down that hill, God is going to call the Assyrian Empire, the big dog in the 7th century BC, to come and obliterate the ten northern tribes of Israel. And a couple of generations after that, the Babylonians will come, they'll crush the Assyrians, and then they will take the remainder of God's people from Judah into exile, where they will remain until they've learned their lesson in some capacity, before finally returning after the exile with Ezra and Nehemiah to try one more time to get this have-no-gods-before-me thing right. And that's our Old Testament timeline, and the minor prophets are scattered throughout this 400 years uh, between the downfall of the kingdom of Solomon and the destruction of Israel and the exile of Judah and the return to the promised land. And Hosea, the prophet in our book today, he lives his life during the time when the Assyrians were that big dog and preparing to be the empire that would take over the world there. Uh, he prophesied that they would come and ultimately that those Israelites in the northern kingdom would be shattered and scattered away and that there would come a day where they would be summoned back from wherever they were into the embrace of the Father. Where the Lord calls out to them and they come shivering and afraid out from the places they've been scattered to. And those shattered people after the invasion uh, slowly reconstituted into a group in the land that was once called a part of Israel but would come to be known as Samaria. And they would be the Samaritans. And we know the Lord Jesus spent a significant portion of his ministry reaching out to those lost sons and daughters of Israel. And that's something that Hosea foreshadows in his book as well. But as God speaks through his prophet, he's painting a picture on at least three levels, all of them true. And I'll tell you what I mean by that as we go. The structure of the book, uh, well, it goes like this. It begins with chapters 1 to 3, and they tell the story of Hosea himself, his personal story. Uh, God has asked him to marry a woman who is, the Bible delicately puts it, promiscuous. Uh, she is a wild woman, not in any sort of fun or cute way. She marries, um, he marries this woman uh, who is not known for keeping promises and staying faithful, and in a society where that woman is unlikely to shake that reputation, well-earned as it is in this case, and to have a stable, productive, protective, warm marriage like men and women so desperately need then and now. Her name is Gomer, and presumably Gomer's parents must have fainted when a prophet of God, a very honorable and prestigious person, said he would like to marry their troublesome daughter. And so they marry, and they have three kids, two sons and a daughter, but she stays true to her reputation, not to her word, to her husband, and chases after other men under the illusion that they have something better to offer her. But she ends up in debt, degraded and heavily implied caught in a dependent cycle of prostitution to pay off her debts. But Hosea finds her in this state, and he pays off her debt to her lover so that he can take her home. 
That is to say, he endures the dignity of paying another man for the right to have his wife back, now that she no longer amuses him and that he is done with her. And he takes her back, and it leads to an incredibly beautiful couple of verses that are only slightly diminished for the modern reader because of one weird term. They go like this. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to their other gods and love their sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. So first, get it out of your system if you have to. I certainly did. Though you turn to other gods and the love of sacred raisin cakes. Oh, those sacred raisin cakes. Uh, it sounds like a crazy thing to be suddenly bringing up in the middle of this story about adultery and forgiveness and otherwise very serious topics. They must have been a kind of sweet food involved in the worship of another god. And sweet tasting food was kind of a bigger novelty back then when they didn't have like a million acres of sugarcane or anything like that. Uh, so sacred raisin cakes. Yes, it's kind of funny, but put that aside. It's part of the bigger picture of unfaithfulness and Hosea's godlike, amazing forgiveness in the face of a huge betrayal where Goma had walked out on him and their three children to chase a relationship that ultimately enslaved her. This is basically a second wedding. He's paying her debt, saying we'll stick together forever and no more prostitution or chasing after others. I'll behave the same towards you. It's a paying a bride price. It's, uh, it's a bond until death do them part. And God has made clear through this process that Hosea is living out like a heart-wrenching sort of almost performance art for the Israelites who are watching his life go on. He's living out a retelling of God's relationship with his people. God's even had them name their children prophetically. The first is named Jezreel after the fortress city where the kings of Israel had lived um, and which had been sort of horribly defiled by the actions of some of the worst kings in their history there. A lot of massacres and unfaithfulness. God says, name your son Jezreel because I haven't forgotten what happened at Jezreel and there's a punishment coming for that on the nation of Israel. God tells them, name your daughter unloved. Name her unloved because I am withdrawing my love from Israel. I will not love them anymore. I'll love Judah. I'll protect Judah. But Israel I have no love left for. And the second son gets to be named not my people because you are not my people and I am not your God. Now this is some dark words and some poor kids. Um, imagine being sent to school named unloved massacre town or God doesn't like me. I hope that they had middle names. But in the same chapter where he gives them these names, God also says this. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they will anoint and appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, my people, and to your sisters, my loved one. So God is making a charge against Israel and Judah that they have abused his covenant, sought out other idols, and um, 
They've forsaken him time and time again. And Hosea and Gomer's life is a picture of this relationship that God has with his people. God extends the covenant to a people who he knows will forsake him. And when they forsake him, he allows them to feel the consequences of their betrayal. The consequences of their sin and the reality of the world they live in, in which they've taken for granted his blessings of protection and deliverance. And then in spite of all that, he is willing to take them back and restore them. And that's a cycle that's repeating in these verses. Hosea and Gomer's story plays out like this from chapters 1 to 3 and from chapters uh, 4 to 10. We have God laying down his charges and telling Israel what they've done and what they are going to endure. They have they've done quite a few things listed out in these chapters. They've followed after other gods. Uh, they seek protection from the pagan nation armies around them like Egypt and Assyria instead of from God. Uh, they take his blessings for granted. Uh, they bring their fantastic harvests in and their many healthy children. They dedicate them to Baal and to Ashtoreth and these Canaanite gods that for 500 years they are supposed to have had nothing to do with. And when they do these things, they are giving recognition for God's blessings and His glory to false gods. And they are making the one true God, the one who saves and blesses, the only one who can do that, they are making Him look stupid and powerless and weak and defeated. Like Hosea was a prophet of God, humiliated by his wife chasing after another man, God's been humiliated by His people. His priesthood chasing after other gods. And He will not permit the world to look at His people and attribute His blessings to other gods. And so these chapters contain some very dark verses and warnings leveled by God against His people that are so graphic, even if I'm pretty sure there's some poetic license in them, that I don't think I would read those verses aloud in a church service. God tells His people, you're thanking Baal for your harvest? Well, then the land is going to dry up. You'll have nothing. You're looking for protection from kings and soldiers? Well, then they're going to us to pieces. You think going to sacred stones and laying with temple prostitutes and praising these pagan idols is the reason you have so many children to fill out your families? Those children were my gift to you and I will take them away from you. Do you think you can just turn back to me at the moment when things get tough and dark and I'll just up and accept you right away? Well, it's not going to work like that anymore. You were supposed to be my priest to the nation so that the whole world would see my love for you, but now you've become priests to false gods, and so the whole world will see me coming after you like a lion tearing you apart. But then, after all this, after all these terrible promises and declarations, God says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities and it will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like 
Adma or make you like Zeboyim. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. God's fury is powerful and His love is stronger still. And even though they have profaned His name so badly in the world, He still has love for His people and ultimately He plans to extend compassion to them and to see them returned to Him. The same goes similarly in chapters 12 and 13, God calling His people to account for their sins and their abandonment promising absolute destruction and punishment. But finally, in chapter 14, our reading for today, God, we see, relents once more. In the passage that was read today, we heard those words, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? The church is... God's people in this day and age, but our membership in that people isn't a bloodline running from the life of Abraham, it's a lifeline running from the blood of Jesus. We're not a nation of a few million people crowded into an area the size of the ACT, we are a kingdom of billions scattered across the earth, united by a common creed, diverse in our practice of worship. And if the Prime Minister of Australia doesn't have the sacred charge over us as God's, uh, over us like God's people had kings over them, then how are we supposed to respond to a message like this? How do we relate to Hosea's warning to a kingdom and their kings now? Well, I mentioned earlier this book operates on at least three levels. There's that national level where the kingdoms of Israel and Judah now divided, they're being rebuked for clinging to foreign gods. Um, to being violent and wicked, for for accepting the name of God to their nation and then representing Him so badly in the world that people are taking His name in vain. And on that level, those nations are told time and time again to repent, and sometimes they do, but they continue to fall away. And they're told now that the time of repentance is over, the time for a punishment has come. But once that punishment comes and passes, if only they will turn back to God and honor His covenant, then they will be restored and He will be their God again. And there will come a day when everyone does come to know God, to know Him through His people and uh, to know His blessings pouring out on the nations around them. That's one level. Then there's the metaphor level with uh, Hosea and Gomer when their relationship plays out an analogy of that experience. The reality of God's real personal agony, his real personal anger, his real personal mercy is shown and displayed in real personal humans present in the lives of the people of Israel. And even if we can't understand the sacred raisin cakes or going to Egypt for horses um, as offenses to God, everyone should be able to understand the idea of a marriage betrayed and broken. If you don't know someone who has been through something like that and you haven't had to look into their face and see the defeat and the pain of those involved, then just wait a minute because it'll happen to someone in your lifetime. And Lord have mercy if you know this experience firsthand. It's a painful picture 
the betrayal of a marriage covenant. And God uses it to impress upon the reader the power of the reality of his people betraying the covenant with which he has come to them. God's people Israel are his bride in this picture, and the church is the bride of Christ in the same kind of metaphor used in the New Testament. God's people today have a commitment to be faithful to him that is as real as a commitment from a husband to a wife to be faithful, to death do them part. And that is playing out in the lives of Hosea and Goma on this metaphor level. But there's also an individual level which we can't afford to miss. Because although God is using individuals to paint a picture for his word uh, to Israel at this national level, um, a nation does not engage in relationship, not really. A nation doesn't have a mind. A nation simply can't do that. If I wanted to have a relationship with my country to know Australia better, I can't do that at a national level because ultimately uh, a nation is a group of individuals. If I had Scott Morrison on the phone, I couldn't rightly say that I was talking to Australia. And with apologies to John Williamson, there is no one who could be on that phone that would constitute Australia calling. The best shot I have to know and love my country is to know a bunch of Australians and what they are like. And when we turn, uh, when we talk about Israel turning back to the Lord, there is no single Israelite king or prophet who that means, who it means to be Israel. It's a movement of every individual heart involved softening and opening back up to the God who led their ancestors out of Egypt. And tucked into the middle of a chapter about God's wrath is this little flash of light in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? This is the text that Paul quotes in his celebration of the work of Jesus. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 55, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? In the midst of Hosea's prophecy to Israel, this verse seems a little bit out of place. Nations don't die or go to the grave. They can be destroyed, a warning that God certainly makes against Israel in this passage uh, and several times. A nation can be lost or scattered and lose its identity, but death is something that individuals do and something from which only individuals require deliverance and redemption. Even so, as the Old Testament uh, has this verse here, it corresponds to the one in the New. And uh, God announces His punishments on Israel. We see a glimpse of the Savior to come. The Savior who God will send, who will be the heart and soul of a new Israel, so that all who call upon His name will be delivered from the sting of death. He comes to us like a good husband to a runaway lover, enduring the humiliation that we've each heaped upon him by how we, each one of us, has lived a life stamped with his image, but mired in sin and selfishness and failure and ingratitude. He pays the price to set us free and invites us back into a true relationship with the God who created us. He washes us clean and tells us, no more sin. We're together again. Don't turn away from me, and I won't turn away from you. Every individual is somewhere in their personally endured version of the Hosea story. Many of us know what it's like to have someone bearing the name of Christ find us in our darkness at the bottom of the well, having shamed ourselves and our Creator so badly by failing, failing to live up to who we know we are supposed to be, 
And then to have that Christ-bearer, that Christian, tell us that if we are willing, God's own Son has paid the price for us to be redeemed and forgiven and washed clean. And the Holy Spirit can dwell in us and unite us to the Father again. And then it's just a matter of striving to be faithful all the days of our life. Practicing those habits we know will help us stay focused on the Lord, uh, ceasing those petty sins to which we've otherwise clung, and engaging in the protracted war of accountability and repentance and renewal to overcome those habitual sins that cling to us. And if this is you, having been lifted up and cleaned off and invited back into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, to become part of this family of believers in that greater body of billions across time that is the church of our God, remember again that you are a renewed member of a priesthood of all believers. You have to live a life so open and beyond reproach that people who don't know God, other than uh, by that gut-level instinct that everyone has that their life means something, they can see you and they can know that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then, when they know you by the name Christian, your duty is to tell them the gospel reinforced with a life that does not take that name in vain. Like Dave Ramsey says, if you're going to drive it like a maniac, don't put a Jesus fish on it. Are you living in a way that the world knows whose priest you are, and are you living the kind of life that would credit you as a member of that priesthood? Or maybe you're earlier in the story and you're estranged from God, caught up in a life that you know you can't help but see now is defined by the failure to be who you are supposed to be, how you've treated those around you or disrespected God or dishonored yourself. Would it surprise you to know that the God of the universe would rather suffer pain and humiliation than to lose out on the chance to reach out to you? There's one thing that God can't forgive, and that's the pig-headed willful blindness that leads some people to spend their entire lives slapping away the outreached hands while they slide slowly into death and hell beyond it. But everything else, no matter how messed up you are, or how unremarkable you think your life is, or how unforgivable you think you might be as a person, you are not forsaken. The one who made you wants to make you new. And that can begin the moment that you confess that you've sinned against the Lord and that you are ready to come home. So let's pray together. Father God, we are forever grateful that you are a God who is faithful to the world he created, to the people with whom he's made his covenant, and to each individual soul who calls you their slump. <laughs> Father God, we are forever grateful that you are a God who is faithful to the world he created, to the people with whom he has made his covenant, and to each individual soul who calls your Son their Lord and Savior. Lord, we're sorry for the ways that we've fallen short of your will for us, for the ways that we've sinned against you and others, for the ways where we might have even downright denied you or run from you. We thank you for the lengths that you go to to rescue us from our own sin and destruction. And for those of us who know your redemption, help us, Lord, to examine ourselves as a new priesthood in the world with clear eyes and how best to live a life that frames the gospel on our lips.
with your righteousness. And for those who yet don't know, who don't know yet who you are, we pray you soften their hearts and turn their faces to you so that they, like we, might know the depth and power of a love that overcomes the grave itself. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.